Turning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. On page 1136. And as Tim mentioned before, there's an outline that you received as you came in. It'll be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. Uh, but the most important thing is Romans 7, page 1136. And I'll leave this in prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, in spite of the fact that we are uh, miserable sinners, uh, that you have given us hope through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died for us, and to take our sins upon himself. Thank you that he has brought us uh, freedom and forgiveness. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that now we can live a new life uh, for him and under him. We pray that your Spirit, who has given us new birth, uh, that same Spirit who gave us these words from the Apostle Paul, would be working in our hearts now, uh, pointing us to Christ, uh, opening your word to us, uh, and causing us to respond rightly to the Lord Jesus. We pray that uh, you would be working in us, Lord. Uh, that uh, that we would that we would indeed uh, be following him and appreciating him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1977, Tunku Abdul Rahman, the first Prime Minister of Malaysia, published a book called Looking Back. Now, in it, he looked back on his life and his time in office. Anyone familiar with the book Looking Back? Anyone heard of it before? Okay, you obviously... Oh, Mary ended. Okay. So, someone was paying attention in Sajara lessons, okay? Right? Because I, when I was in school anyway, you had to learn all these things. Well, one of the things in the history book was, you had to learn was, what's the name of Tunkar Rama's book? Looking back. Right? And it always make multiple choice questions. One of those is about three or four different ones. Anyway, politicians all over the world like to do that, don't they? Uh, they like to publish their memoirs uh, to preserve their legacy for posterity. And it's quite interesting to read them. Uh, because you actually learn about them, learn about the nations they come from, uh, you learn about what's going on, and you read the news, and then you know, 20 years later, you won't know this, but later on, you know, 20 years later, you think, ah, oh, that's what was actually going on there, you know? Uh, and uh, you can see how things happen in the corridors of power. Well, in our passage today, Paul is doing some looking back uh, as well. Uh, Paul wrote it, and the Spirit gave it to us. Not to reminisce or to remember the past, not to boast about a legacy, uh, but because there are valuable lessons uh, here for many people today. Before we look at it together, let's briefly recap where we're up to in the book of Romans. In Romans 1, we saw that the gospel is God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we saw from the second half of chapter 1 through to the middle of chapter 3 that we need the gospel because we are sinners. Facing God's just wrath. In the second half of chapter 3, we learnt about God's rescue. That was the heart of the gospel. And we saw that Jesus died on the cross to take our place under God's just wrath, so that we can be declared not guilty. Now, the technical term for it is that we could be justified. And in chapter 4, we saw that we receive this justification by faith. That is, by trusting in God's promises. And in the first half of chapter 5, we saw that if we are justified by faith, then now we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We look forward to God's glory. And we know that God loves us, because we know that Christ died for us. 
And then from the second half of chapter 5, we're looking at some kind of, some questions, some objections that might be raised to this gospel. And we saw that it's quite reasonable that the obedience of just one man, Jesus, could deal with the sins of many and give us eternal life. After all, the disobedience of one man, Adam, led to condemnation for many. Now, as we looked at Adam and Jesus, we saw that because of Adam, we were under the terrible clutches of sin. The end result of that was death. And we all lived in the realm of sin and death. There we go, the picture there. Okay, We lived under the realm of sin and death. But then, through Jesus, God made a new realm. A realm in which grace reigns. A realm in which righteousness reigns. A realm in which obedience reigns. And so now there are two realms, two kingdoms, two domains, two different ways to exist. And we all started off on the left-hand side of the diagram. And now we've become on the right-hand side. Christ, though he was sinless, bore our sins. And so he suffered on our behalf, on the, on the left-hand side of that diagram, for our sins. He took our sins, and he died for them there. But when he was raised, he was raised on the right-hand side. Because once his sin and death, once the penalty of sin is paid, then sin and death have no more dominion over him. He bore our penalty completely. And so, no longer does he... He, he, in living, in dying, he says he died to sin once for all. In living, he lives to God. And when we were converted, we too were united with Christ. We joined with him. And so that little person on the left-hand side, which was us, died with Christ. And not only that, the little person on the right-hand side was raised with Christ. So now we are in the right-hand box. We are no longer under sin. It is no longer our master. We no longer have obligation to it anymore. And therefore, we should not offer our bodies to sin, for we have a new master, and we should serve him. Furthermore, we are no longer under the law of Moses. God gave Moses the law one and a half thousand years before Christ, so that sin might be clarified, might be increased. It functioned that left-hand box to show how sinful sin really is. But now that we're in the right-hand box, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. We're not under the law, but under grace. Grace is what motivates us. Grace is what drives us. Grace is what leads us. Grace is what trains us for godliness. Well, that doesn't mean for one moment we are free to sin. Not set free in order to sin, but in order to serve. For we are no longer slaves of sin, we are slaves of righteousness. And that is a good slavery. A slave of sin gets what he deserves, death. A slave of God gets what he doesn't deserve, the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was Romans 6 in a nutshell. We looked at it last week. Chapter 7, which is our passage for today, 
begins by repeating the argument in a different way. In verses 1 to 3, Paul uses the illustration of marriage. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I don't know if you've been reading the papers about people getting married in the afterlife. Have you read about people getting married in the afterlife? Well, some medium will say, oh, this person wants to get married to this person, the families get together and they get they have a marriage in the afterlife. You've got some nods there. Right. Or when one party dies tragically, like Teo Beng Ho, right, then the marriage ceremony goes on without him. I, remember, I think his sister stood in for proxy with him. Now, you can understand why people in grief would do that, can't you? Right? But actually, that's, that's not marriage. That's, that's a little bit silly, isn't it? But it's not just in non-Christian circles we see silly things. In Christian circles we see that as well. Ever seen Christian wedding cards and poems or the covers of, uh, you know, order of service booklets for the wedding and they talk about marriage as an eternal union? That's silly, isn't it? Sorry if it's your wedding, I'm sorry that, okay? Because I don't actually remember who had it and who didn't, not think of anyone in particular here, right? But marriage is not eternal. Marriage only lasts until the death of one party. And it's over. That might be a bit of a disappointment to some and a great relief to others. But it's true that marriage is for life, not after death. Because the real marriage to which all marriages point is a marriage between Christ and his church that is consummated at the end. And when the reality comes, then all the shadows must flee. Paul points out that death annuls marriage. As long as both parties are alive, the law of marriage is binding. But if one party dies, the other party is released from it, and all the obligations of it. And so if your husband dies, then you are free to marry another. If your husband is still alive, then you are not free to marry another, because you belong with your husband. In the same way, Paul says, once you were under law, you were under the law of Moses in the left-hand box, he tells his Jewish people. The law said, do this, and you will live. And you failed to do it. And so the law condemned you. But remember how Romans 6 talks about dying with Christ and being united with him? Well, Paul continues in verse 4 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You had a contractual relationship with the law, so to speak. It's as if you were married. But then when you died, well, that's it. It's over. Contract expired. The law is still there. 
still can read about it in the Old Testament? There's still things you can learn from it? But now that you've been raised with Christ to the right hand box, your relationship is with Him. You belong to Him, not to the law. And the purpose is, at the end of verse 4, that we may bear fruit for God. That is, that we may live the kind of life that God wants us to live. Show the character God wants us to show. That change, that growth, that transformation doesn't come from being given law on, on, on tablets and say, look, obey this. It comes from a heart that loves Jesus. It comes from a heart that knows the grace that God has shown us in Him. It comes from a heart that is made new by the Spirit whom God gives to those who belong to Him. That is different from the left hand box. When we were in the left hand box, or in the words of verse 5, when we were in when we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law stirred up our sinful desires. And we put them into action. Acting in ways that lead to God's judgment. Just death. But now, verse 6. But now we are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve not under the old written code. But in the new life of the spirit. That we no longer serve under the law. The law of Moses no longer applies to us. It, it can no longer stir up our sinful passions. We are no longer condemned by the law. The law will no longer tell us, you are bad, you are evil, you have no hope of God ever accepting you. No, 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 no. Not because we disagree with the law's verdict. The law's right. But because we are no longer trying to be accepted by God on the basis of law. We are in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven of all our sins. We have been justified, declared not guilty by God. We are accepted by God through Jesus alone. And now we serve in a new way, in the new life of the Spirit. The promises of the Old Testament, one of which we read about today, by the Spirit coming and giving us a new heart, is being fulfilled. God will give us the will and the power to do what is right from the inside. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Paul's going to continue this train of thought and open up what that means in chapter 8, verse 1, really. We'll look at that next week. Tim's going to take us through that. Chapter 8, verse 1, logically continues the argument from chapter 7, verse 6. Though, as we clearly see, um, Paul doesn't go straight there. The Spirit leads him to write the rest of chapter 7. 
Verses chapter 7, on one hand can be called a, I mean, think about it, you think about it as a side argument to answer some more possible objections. On the hand, other hand, you can think about it as looking at that which held us captive in the old written code, and then chapter 8, looking at the new life of the Spirit. But even as Paul answers these objections that come up, which he, as we've been looking through Romans, you can see that's what he keeps on doing, and it stops to answer questions. Um, Some very important points come out of it. Let's think about this. There are two objections there. The first one might have sounded something like this. Paul, you said in verse 5 that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. To bear fruit for, for death. And then you talked about, in verse 6, you talked about being released from the law which held us captive. In other words, Paul, you're putting the law in that left hand box over there the domain of sin. That's a pretty serious thing to do, isn't it, Paul? Because the law came from God. Are you saying that the law is evil? Are you saying that what God gave to Moses is sin? Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. The law of Moses is not sin? Of course that's unthinkable. God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. It can't be that the law itself is evil. Law is not sin, but it does have a function in relation to sin. Verse 7 continues. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the law exposes sin. If there was no law to say, do not covet, we would never know, never have known what it means to covet. Still would have coveted, but we just wouldn't have known that we're doing it. But it's more than that. The law not only exposes sin, it actually stimulates sin. Well, look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the covenant, sorry, through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin used the law. It's like when you see a sign on the wall. Wet paint, do not touch. It wouldn't have occurred to you to touch the wall until you saw the sign. And then when you saw the sign, you started thinking, oh, I wonder if it's really wet. Maybe it's been here for a while. You know, they just didn't take down the sign. Maybe, maybe I'll just touch a little bit and see. That's actually what happened to Adam and Eve, isn't it? God actually gave them a law. Do not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then sin came through the serpent, took the opportunity of the law to bring in temptation. Paul shows his oneness with Adam here when he describes Adam's experience as his own. In verse 9 onwards. Once I was alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
deceived me, and through it killed me. That was Adam's experience, and that was the experience, therefore, of every human being in Adam, including Paul and you and, and me. Because just like we're united with Christ by faith, we're united with Adam by nature. Adam's story is our story. Paul talks about himself here, but it's himself and Adam. Once we were alive, apart from the law. But back in the garden, when the commandment came, sin used it to kill us. So was the commandment in the garden evil? No. Was the law of Moses evil? No, surely not. Sin is the one that's evil, not the law. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But that leads to the second question. Okay, the law is good, but is it the law's fault that I am sinful and therefore facing God's anger? Is the law responsible for my condemnation? Even if the law is good, is the law the cause of death? Or in the words of verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? <coughs> Answer, by no means. <coughs> now, in the next few verses, Paul is going to show that the law is not to blame. Right, he's going to, what he's going to do is actually go back to life under the law, and examine it, Show us what it's like. And as examines life under the law, life in the left-hand column, it's got to be clear that actually it's not the law that's the problem, but sin. In fact, he states it up front in verse 13. He says in the second half, It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. law. Yeah. It's like a knife. Right? A knife is a good thing. Because with the knife, you can cut meat and cook butter pork. Right? And that is a good thing. But if I take the knife and I use it to stab someone, then that is a bad thing, isn't it? It's not the knife's fault. Thank you, Tim. It's not the knife's fault. It's the fault of the person who does it. Sin used the law, which is good, to produce death. And yet God is still in control. God's plan was that sin would be identified, and in fact increased, to show how bad sin is, where it leads. Sin would be showed up as it produces death through the law. But it's not the law's fault. Sin is using what is good for evil. And if sin takes what is good and uses it for evil, then it's not the fault of the law. It's the fault of sin. In fact, this whole section really is answering the question, is it the law's fault, isn't it? What's the fault of the law? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. What a thing for Paul to say. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, 
sold under sin. Now, come to a section where people have lots of arguments about who is the I here. Right? So commentators and theologians and people studying Romans in significant theology classes and you know, staff Bible study meetings and everything. We have what's the I here? Okay. As far as I can see, Paul must be referring to what he, what he was like on the left-hand side of the equation. Okay. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that he's referring to everyone on the left-hand side. Not everyone. Is, everyone on the left-hand side is in rebellion against God, but, but not everyone can say, as he says in verse... Um, uh, uh, which verse is it? They say, uh, verse 22, that I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Okay. People who say that um, this cannot be Paul before he was converted will say, well, okay, if, you, if you're not converted, how can you delight in the law in your inner being? Uh, that's, that's probably the best point against it. Um, at the same time, this is not just everybody. This is, this is Paul the pious Jew. This is the Paul the pious Jew who had the law and tried to keep it. I think that would fit too. He's got the commands of God. He's a Jew. He's seeking to follow. Another reason why people might say it's um, someone who's um, already a Christian, in this eye here, is because I think it's somewhat comforting, isn't it? Somewhat comforting to know that, well, if Paul the Apostle, when he's a Christian, goes through the struggle, then, you know, the struggles that I go through, this kind of thing... It's okay, lah. Yeah, not so bad. Paul also like that. Right? But, think about the context of the passage. Right? Paul's already set up in chapter 6. You were once enslaved to sin. Now, you've got a new life in Christ. You've got a new master. In fact, um, he talks about the fact that we've been freed from the slavery of sin. On conversion. In fact, he even says that in verse 6 of chapter 7. He says, Now we've been released from the law. We have been released from the law. Having died to that which held us captives, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. He's saying, That's the past, that's the present. And yet, in chapter 7, the I in chapter 7 is, in verse 14, sold under sin. Furthermore, if you go down to verse 23 of chapter 7, it talks about how the eye there is a captive to the law of sin. But if you go to chapter 8, verse 2, the converted person, well, has been set free from the law of sin and death. See, he cannot be writing about his present experience. This is Paul when he is a Jewish rabbi. He knows the law is right. He knows it comes from God. He's doing his very best to keep it. But alas, he can't. So in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, the very thing I, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it's no longer I who do it but sin who dwells in me. See, the law is good, it is right, it is proper. Even as he sinned, Paul knew that. 
wasn't the law's fault. It was the fault of sin, which held him captive. See, Paul is a, he's a, he's a real Israelite. Like Israel of old, he wants to do the right thing. Remember, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua calls all the people together and says, Who will you serve? They say, We will serve the Lord. Joshua said, You can't. And they say, Yes, we will. You can't. Like, yes, you can. We will. We will. And of course they didn't. Over and over and over again. And like a good Israel, Paul wants to obey the law. Outwardly, he did everything right. Philippians says, heresy of Pharisees, everything meticulous, but he knows on the inside that he hasn't really kept the law. And he can't. Verse 18 continues. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not just shrugging off his responsibilities here. He's showing the desperate, inescapable nature of sin. We're addicted to sin. Not the law's fault, but it's, it's sin. And it's not just temptation on the outside, like it is for Adam. Sin lies deep in the human heart. And the human heart is naturally sinful. Paul says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Like the psalmist in the Old Testament, Rabbi Paul loves God's law. He knows it is right, it is good. But his body is sinful. Can't keep it. See, the software is fine. The law is good. But his hardware is messed up. He's a slave to sin. And so when you run this law software on this messed up hardware, you get the blue screen of death. Windows users know what I mean. Because remember, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Paul's heading for judgment. Heading for destruction. Heading for disaster. And so he cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will free me from the slavery to sin? Who will rescue me from the death I so richly deserve as a result of my actions? Who could possibly help me? And when the answer came for Paul on the road to Damascus, it was a totally surprising one for him, wasn't it? And while Paul tells us the answer properly in chapter 8, he can't resist the sneak preview where he slips in the answer in 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is a saviour. Saves us the Lord Jesus. And so in chapter 8, Paul will go on to show how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God did what the law could not do because of our sinful nature. He made us right with himself. And he did this for the death of his son. So that now, we don't live by the law. We don't live by the sinful nature. We live by the Spirit. Come back next week and then we'll open up the first half of chapter 8 to us. 
Before Paul gets there, though, he summarizes his position at left-hand box. His position as the pious Jew who did as much as he could possibly do with the law. The Roman seven position before God saved him. The big question is, did the law bring death to me? Is the law's fault? No, no, it's not the law's fault. The law's not sin. The problem is himself. Verse 25. So then I serve the law of God with my mind. Love the law. Think highly of it. Nothing against the law. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And that is what leads to death. Well, brothers and sisters, what are the implications of this for us? How does it Is this Paul's story happen to him? What about us? Well, it depends really who we are, doesn't it? If you are in the left-hand box, if you haven't yet received Christ as your Lord, then let me warn you about the law. It won't save you. It will just enslave you. If you're going to obey law, if you're going to come under the law, if you're going to, if you're going to try and get right with God by keeping laws, then at least make it the law of Moses, okay? That was the law that God gave Moses in the Old Testament. You just try and keep that. And I tell you, if you try to keep it properly, you will certainly fail. Over and over and over again. Or even try just the one commandment that Paul mentions in this passage. Do not covet. Do not desire. Do not long for something or someone who is not yours. You try it. You will fail. The law will show you your weakness and your sinfulness, but it won't save you. It will drive you to despair. But friends, you don't need to do that. Because you can learn from Paul's experience here in Romans 7. You can learn from Israel's experience over the years, which Paul encapsulates. You can learn from his mistake and theirs. The law is holy and righteous and good, but what you need is not a set of laws that show up your sinful heart. What you need is a saviour who will take your punishment away and clean you up. Now, I know it's terribly unlikely that any of you will ever try to obey the law of Moses. More likely, you will try to obey a set of laws that you've made up for yourself. Or that your parents have taught you. Or that was handed down to you from your old religion. Or as a mismatch of bits and pieces from the Bible taken out of context without regard for its fulfillment in Christ. Now let me ask you. If the pure law of God, if the good law of God, given through Moses from the hand of God himself, could not save Paul or any of the Jews, do you think for one moment your Rojat laws, your bits and pieces, mishmash there and there is going to save you? You will just be condemned by the law. 
You will try and try and try and fail. Unless, of course, you deceive yourself by reducing your standards to something so low, so far from what God's real law is, that you can proclaim your own pass. What's the point of that? Friends, do not look to law-keeping as a way to get right with God. There is one way for you to be right with God, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus. There is one way to rightly live the Christian life as a response of love to the God who has saved us. Stop trying to be good to reach God. Instead, come to Jesus as your Lord, your Savior. What about us who are already in Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, if we belong to Christ, then, then we are not under the law. We are no longer slaves of sin. And yet, there are some aspects of what Paul writes here, if, if we're honest, that what should remind us very much of our own lives. So much so, that's one reason why people argue that Romans 7 must be a, a genuine New Testament believer, even though from the context I think we can't say it can't be. So why does, why, does, why does Paul's words here just resonate with us so much when we're not under the law? How come we can identify with it so much when we're not the people Paul's talking about? We're not slaves to sin anymore. Well, I suspect there are, there are still times when in our own minds... We go back to law-keeping as a means of impressing God. When we forget to keep the gospel central in our lives. When we forget to keep what Jesus did on the cross as the, our focus. When we forget the truth of no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We forget the Spirit's role in making us holy. We get ourselves into a, a rut that's a bit like the rut that's described here. Forget God's grace and when we sin we try and make up for it by either doing good things or by not sinning anymore. And then we fail and then we think God has condemned us. So we feel far from God. It makes it easier to sin again. It makes us feel worse. So we try harder. And we feel God more condemning us. So we try harder, we feel further, we feel more content, and we just keep on going round and round. And we say, I can't not. And it feels something like what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. But actually, actually, it's different. It's different because that is not where we belong. That is not what we're meant to be. That is not the reality of who we are in Christ. We're not actually under sin like Paul was in Romans 7. We're not actually under the law like Paul was before he came to Christ. We are actually under grace. We are under the lordship of Christ, not the law. 
don't need to be delivered from the law. We already are. What we need to do is to realize it. So don't let the law condemn you. When you sin, bring it to God in repentance. Trust in Jesus' death for you. Know that God really does forgive you. Really. If you are in Christ, God really has justified you. He's declared you're not guilty. Jesus has paid for your sins. There is really no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't go back to depending on your performance as a means of getting right with God. Don't go back to think that you earn your salvation by law-keeping. Or even that you maintain your salvation by law-keeping. Trust in God's grace. Be assured of it. And God's Spirit will lead you to love Christ and to follow Him. He will lead you not to sin, but to obedience. And you will find that actually you are fulfilling the law. Not by putting yourself under the law of Moses, nor by trying to earn your way to God by keeping it, but by following the Spirit as He speaks in His Word. As he points to Christ, your new master. As he draws you to the Father. And he leads you to holiness. More about that in chapter 8. Let's pray.